On her way to draw water from the well, Sam pauses for a short break. Her water jar is empty, but with the sun blazing overhead, it feels heavier and the walk longer. It's noon. Not a good time to go to the well to draw water. Of course, the best time to draw water from the well was in the cool of the morning. Everybody knew that. Now, in the heat of the noonday sun, nobody would be there. But that was the point. Nobody would be there. If she had gone to the well to draw water in the morning, everyone would be there. And if they'd seen her, they would have lowered their eyes and walked away. Some, behind her back, would have whispered about her to each other. That wasn't too bad, but the worst was when mothers would hurry their children away from her as she passed. Her heart would sink and her face would burn, flush with shame. What did people see when they looked at her? Just the scandal? Her guilt? Who was she? They didn't really know her. But then again, what if they really knew her? Would it change anything? From a distance, she sees that someone is at the well. And getting closer, she sees it's a man. And by the looks of it, a Jewish man. Just her luck. This is probably the only thing worse than if she had gone to the well in the morning. Jews never journeyed through Samaria. They thought Samaritans made them unclean before God. So what is he doing here? Reading from John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So the story begins with Jesus on a journey from Judea to Galilee, which is about a six-day journey. And halfway, as he's traveling through the region of Samaria, they pass a town called Sychar, where it says Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, decided to take a breather beside a well as his disciples go to get food. So here he is, he's alone, he's tired, and it's probably pretty hot, as the text notes that it was about the sixth hour, which is 12 noon. Now onto the scene steps a woman who's coming to the well to draw water, which is a bit unusual, because the custom of the day was that people would almost always go to the well in the morning, in the cool of the day, and the well was a place of socializing, an ancient water cooler of sorts, where people would gather and the women would meet and connect, catch up on the latest news and gossip. So it's interesting that this woman comes out in the heat of the day alone. But as we find out later, it makes a lot of sense because she's a woman with quite a colorful past. We find out that she's had five husbands and the sixth guy who she's living with, she didn't even bother to marry. Someone who marries five times would be shocking, even by today's standards. But in the first century, it would have been unheard of. So this woman was undoubtedly the talk of the town, probably somewhat of a social pariah. 
So she's coming out to get water at high noon, most likely so she could avoid people. Avoid the gaze and whispers of the townspeople. Avoid the gossip, because she probably was the gossip. But today, there's a man by the well. And I wonder how she approached him. I imagine she didn't make eye contact. Because what do you do when you're ashamed? When there's something in your life, your past, something you've done that you're ashamed of? Well, you sort of look down. You avoid eye contact. Or maybe you put up a tough exterior. Because you feel insecure and vulnerable, you put on a tough mask for others. And I think perhaps there's a bit of that going on as the woman's response to Jesus is a bit caustic. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? There's a lot here. The text notes that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans because Samaria was part of the northern kingdom, which was conquered by Assyria. And then Assyrians took other conquered people and they mixed. So Samaritans were a mixed race with a mixed religion. And to the pious monotheistic Jews, the syncretic race and religion of the Samaritans was an utter anathema. It was also a social taboo at the time for men to interact with women in public. So she's aware of all this, and it seems like she's sort of rubbing it in. It's sort of like, I know you have prejudices against our kind, against me. And it's almost a preemptive hostility that comes from someone who's been hurt, who's been wounded and rejected many times. So it makes sense that she has this kind of attitude. I think maybe she almost had to in order to survive. Jesus isn't offended, but just continues and says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Very interesting. If you knew the gift of God, that God is a giver of gifts, and that he wants to give you living water, and who it is that's saying to you, of course, she doesn't know who he is. She has no idea. She will know. It's sort of a meta-theme in this narrative, the progressive revelation of Jesus to this woman. But he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, you would have asked. And I find almost the whole of the gospel right here. God is a generous God who wants to give good gifts. Life is not fundamentally about performance. It's not about earning your way into heaven or earning your way into the approval of people or success or achievement. It's not about earning at all. It's about coming to know God who has the gift of living water and we just need to ask. Something very childlike about this woman as the conversation continues, she engages Jesus in this metaphor that he began. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. So interesting. She seems to be asking about physical water, but it's clearly getting spiritual. Where do you get this living water? And verse 12, are you greater than? In other words, who are you? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So interesting. Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Such a profound truth. It's a true statement about physical thirst, but it's also a true statement about life. 
that we're always thirsty, that no matter what we pursue, we find ourselves thirsty again. Thirsty, even desperate. For what? For the deep longings of the soul. We each have deep soul thirst for love, belongingness, affirmation, attention. We see this in children, how much they crave love and attention and affirmation. But have we really changed so much? I still find in my own heart that same scared, insecure 10-year-old, desperate for love and affirmation. But like this woman, we often end up looking to fill our thirsts at the wrong places. I think depending on your background and life situation and temperament, we look for it in different things. Different things captivate our hearts. For some, it's career and money, looking powerful and shooting up some high-rise in a major metropolitan city. We think that that will fill our soul thirst. For some, it's the approval of the people in our lives, our friends and our family. For this woman, it seems like it was men or romance. She was married five times. And I wonder, what must that have been like? As a young lady, I imagine she must have been quite charming and beautiful. I don't think you could pull this off if you weren't. Perhaps she felt that aching thirst in her soul for love, attention, affirmation. And I wonder how it happened. If maybe some charming, handsome guy took notice of her, said sweet things to her, made lavish promises to her. And in her young heart, she felt so filled up. She felt on top of the world. She felt like this is the answer to the deep thirst of my soul. And we don't know what happened, but it ended, probably painfully. But somehow she recovers, picks herself up, convinces herself that the problem was with that guy. He wasn't the right one. She's back at it again five times. And now the sixth person, she doesn't even bother to marry. It's like she knows that this is a failed strategy. She's not even really hoping at this point, but it's like, what else is she going to turn to? I imagine as a young girl, she never thought her life would turn out like this. Yet here she is. And I think one of the most delightful things about this story is that it really captures the gospel story that this half-dead, calloused, broken person can be redeemed. That there is redemption and restoration. That however broken and mangled we become, there still retains glimpses of the glory of God in man. And here's Jesus bringing this woman back to life. Jesus offers her this living water. She says, picking back up in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And here the conversation takes a sharp turn. Jesus says to her in verse 16, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Wow. The very issue that this woman was trying to avoid, Jesus brings into the light the full shameful truth about our past. Why does Jesus do this? It seems almost like it's a non sequitur. This woman says, give me this living water, and Jesus says, go, call your husband. But it's not. Because the only way she's going to experience redemption and restoration is if she faces her shame and disappointment. Because so long as her shame is hidden and covered, then it can't be healed and forgiven. So it's painful. 
confronting the reality of who we are and what we've done, but like a surgeon's knife, cutting out the cancer. It's a good pain. It's a healing pain. I think we often think that our greatest need is for some external thing to satisfy our thirst. But the Bible says that our fundamental problem is our sin. All the junk that's inside. All the things that we're not proud of that causes us to lower our gaze, to avoid people, our envy, our cowardice, our lust, our greed, our lovelessness. And so often we hide these things. We suppress these uncomfortable truths, which takes a lot of energy, which is why we're tired. Life feels heavy. Relationships are burdensome. It wasn't always like that. The pathway to redemption turns out to be something easy and hard. We simply need to allow ourselves to be fully known because only then will we be able to be fully loved. I think the most amazing thing about this woman is that when Jesus brings out her shame and she's fully exposed, she doesn't run away. She doesn't get angry or hostile or defensive. She doesn't say, what is it to you? Who are you to judge? Instead, she accepts it. And she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. She says, can you teach me how to relate to God? She asked Jesus about worship. So interesting that buried in this woman's heart is a desire for worship, so that when she perceives that this man is a prophet, the next thing that follows is a question about worship. She's the last person you'd think would be interested in worship, but I think it speaks to what is buried in each of our hearts. Beneath all of our pursuits is a desire for worship. The Wall Street executive chasing after his fortunes is looking for worship. That frat boy who's always drinking and partying, that sorority girl. Beneath all of our pursuits of money, possessions, status, achievement, romance, is ultimately the desire for worship. Pascal said, we have a God-shaped void in our hearts. And Augustine said, we are forever restless until we find a rest in thee. As Jesus talks about worship, it turns out that deep in our heart is a longing for the Messiah. She says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Finally, verse 10 is complete. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What is the living water? Jesus finally says, I am the living water. I who speak to you am he. I want to ask you, where do you find yourself in this story? How might God be inviting you to take a step closer to him today? Maybe Jesus is somewhat of a stranger. You're not quite sure what to make of him, but you're tired of pursuing and coming up empty, tired of the same old failed strategies, and you're wondering, is there something more? Perhaps Jesus is inviting you to consider him more deeply. Maybe there are things in your life that you're ashamed of, that you want to hide, boundaries that you've crossed, innocence lost, ways that you've tried to fill your soul thirst only to find yourself with greater emptiness, shame, and degradation. As this woman's sin and shame is brought into the light, as Jesus forgives her and reveals himself to her, she leaves her water jar, which is emblematic of her transformation, because she doesn't need it, because she's not thirsty anymore. And she runs into the town to the very people she was trying to avoid. And she says in verse 29, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Her shame has now become her testimony. 
because her shame has been brought into the light and healed by the love and grace of God. She is so free, and that's the joy of salvation. And from here, she says, come, see, the same language that Jesus used to call his disciples in John chapter 1 is now coming from this woman's mouth. She's the first apostle, sent one, to proclaim the good news, calling people to come and see Jesus. And wonder of wonders, the passage ends with the whole town proclaiming that we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the invitation for each one of us. As we've experienced Jesus' love, Jesus who knew everything that we ever did, yet had mercy and forgiveness on us, we become his apostles sent out to proclaim the good news and invite others to come and see.